Good morning, everyone, again, and welcome. Um, my name is Ariel, Ariel Mackey, and I'm going through the Frontline Internship this year, and I'll be reading um, this morning's teaching text. Um, if you guys will join me in Hosea chapter 2, um, you can open your Bibles or the words will be um, up on the screen behind me. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me now, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in her days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant, a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. 
the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. You doing okay? Hey, uh, chances are, if you're new to church or if you listened carefully to that passage, that was not the most encouraging thing that you've read all week. Uh, so this is one of those texts that it's not like, hey, let's read this and then I'll go to lunch. Uh, this is one that needs a little bit of unpacking. So, man, thanks for being with us. My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors. And uh, here's the thing, man. If you're new to church or if you've, uh, have, you haven't been in a while or you're kind of dragging your, yourself in today, we're glad that you're here. And uh, even when you feel far from God or feel like you don't belong, you really do belong here. And I think God is, he, he wants to meet with you. So thanks for being with us. What is this about? What, what did we just read? Hosea 2. This is a fascinating story. We're in uh, week two of a series that we're going to be in uh, all the way up until Easter. So if you're kind of asking the question, what on earth just happened? What did we read? What is this story about? Hosea, let me say it like this, is a great story. And there's a difference between a good story and a great story in this regard. All good stories build tension. All good stories have some elements that kind of drive you along with the plot line. But a great story, something that makes a great story, is when you can read it and the characters slowly over time start articulating your reality with better words than you could. It's what happens when you start reading Lord of the Rings or whatever and you feel like, I'm living this adventure myself and, and I feel f like Frodo in this moment or I feel like uh, Samwise Gamgee in this moment or I, whatever it might be where you start entering into the story and it's no longer just a story about some fictional characters but now it's a story about you and your life. Right? This is all good stories do this. Uh, one of my favorite stories, by the way, is Lord of the Flies. Anybody ever read Lord of the Flies? Uh, it's one of my favorite stories, not just because it reminds me of growing up with nine brothers and sisters in Choctaw, where they wouldn't wear clothes and they would attack each other. That was kind of my family background. Um, the reason I love Lord of, the, Lord of the Flies is because the story is so impactful. It's a story about uh, an airplane that crashes on an island, and the only survivors are young British boys. And over time, these British boys, they form two uh, warring tribes, and brutality and chaos ensues, and they start killing each other. And at the very end, there's this British soldier that arrives on the scene in a boat. He saw the fire on the island. He arrives on the scene, and he looks with shame on these young British boys. How could you do this? How could you attack each other? How could you be so brutal? And then he looks back, and he sees his own Navy ship in the background. And the story of Lord of the Flies on the first layers, it's just a story about a bunch of little boys on an island. But on a deeper level, this isn't just a story about little boys on an island. This is a story about humanity. This is a story about how all of us, when left to ourselves, are prone to chaos and brutality and war. This is, this is the real story of Lord of the Flies. Hosea is no different. It's not just a good story. It's a great story, and it has three layers. So if you're going to understand what's just happened and what we just read, you've got to understand these three layers. Here, here's the first layer of this story. This is a story about a man named Hosea and a woman named Gomer. On the very surface level, top layer, this is a story about a real man named Hosea from the 8th century in Israel and a real woman who is a prostitute named Gomer, right? What we read last week is that God basically told Hosea, hey, I want you to go love an unfaithful woman, which is a weird thing for God to say, but he did. He told Hosea to do that. So Hosea goes, and he falls in love with this prostitute. He makes her his wife, and the story is of her repeated unfaithfulness where she'll slide back into prostitution and of Hosea's repeated, repeated pursuit because he's so, not just, he's not just brokenhearted by her sin, he's overwhelmed with love for her. He can't not pursue her. This is a story about Hosea 
and about Gomer. But on the second layer, the next level down as you drop down, this isn't just a story about one man and one woman in the 8th century. This is actually a story about God and his people. We're going to see that today. And one layer deeper, if you're willing to go there, this isn't just a story about God and his people in the 8th century. This is a story about God and you today. This is a story of God trying to tell you how he feels. Uh, I can't think of a book of the Bible that has more um, feeling, emotive language than the book of Hosea, where it's basically God saying, this is how I feel about you. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, welcome. Just listen and hear how God feels about you, and maybe it'll change your perspective a little bit. So what's happening in chapter 2, that passage that we just read together? What was taking place? Well, here's what's happening on that top layer, the first level. What happened is uh, right after Hosea married Gomer, they had some kids together, and marriage was going okay. But then over time, she started to run. And and, and chapter 2 is the very first time that she slides back into prostitution, not out of need, not out of necessity, but she slides back into prostitution because that's what she wants. That's what she desires. So she's actually craving love from other lovers. She leaves her husband, and her husband is left all by himself to raise the kids alone. This is the story of chapter 2, but what God does is he flips it, and he says, okay, the way that Hosea feels about Gomer in this moment, right after her initial affairs, and right after her initial slipping away and being unfaithful and pursuing prostitution, the way that Hosea feels, God is saying, that's how I feel. I feel like that towards my people because of their idolatry. And we'll get into what idolatry is in just a minute, but here's the big idea of chapter 2. Idolatry, in the eyes of God, is spiritual adultery. That's the big idea today. We're going to look at the heart and the heartache of spiritual adultery. Have you ever known someone that has committed adultery? Maybe you've lived that yourself. Maybe it was a spouse left you for someone else, or maybe he was having a secret affair and you didn't know about it. Maybe as a mom or a dad, maybe as a close friend. Here's the reality. There are some of you in this room, this is your story. You've been unfaithful. And the pain of adultery, the heartache of adultery, something that brings so much devastation and heartache and pain, what God wants to say to you today is that when you chase after idols, that's the pain and the heartache and the wounds that I receive. That's how I feel when you chase after idols. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Now, why would God call idolatry spiritual adultery? Why would he set up this entire story about this man, Hosea, chasing after this prostitute named Gomer and just constantly chasing her down and, and, and pursuing her and relentlessly loving her. Why would he do this to try to display what it feels like on his perspective when we chase after other idols? And for a better question, what are idols anyway? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. So uh, if you're taking notes, just three things that I want you to see. And here's the first one. I want you to see the heart of spiritual adultery, the very heart, the essence of what spiritual adultery is. So if you're with me, Hosea 2, look at verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now this story, just pause there, this story on the surface is about Gomer and kind of her internal dialogue that she has with herself. She looks at Hosea and she says, Hosea, my husband, doesn't have what I want and doesn't even have what I think I need for basic survival. 
And so rather than pursuing him, I'm going to go to these other things. So she lists off, I'm going to go to uh, these other lovers because I think they will give me bread. They'll give me water. Uh, they'll give me, it says here, wool and flax. By the way, if you're not a fashion designer from, from the 8th century, then you're probably not sure what wool and flax really mean. Wool and flax are just basic necessities. They're clothing. So wool in the winter, flax in the summer. And what she's saying basically is, I have basic needs, water and food and clothing. Hosea, can't, he can't take care of that for me. I have basic needs, and I can't trust my husband to provide. So I'm going to run to these other lovers to get my basic needs taken care of. But then she says oil and drink. Oil in that culture was, was so vital because it was perfume and it made you look good and it cleaned up your face a little bit. And so she's saying, man, I, I want some oil and then wine. That's just pure pleasure, right? So she's saying for basic necessities and for these other elements of joy and pleasure and kind of living a, a more beautiful life, Hosea won't do it for me. I've got to chase other lovers and that's what I'm after. Now here's what you've got to understand. This is more than just a sexual pursuit of pleasure. Gomer is not just after sexual pursuits. She wants what lovers can give her. And, and if you read between the lines, here's what she's saying. I want comfort, and I want security, and I want pleasure, and I don't think Hosea, my husband, can give that, so I'm going to chase other lovers, and I'll get what I really want, what I really need from them. And what God is saying to his people is when you have chased after other idols like Baal, that's what you've done to me. Here's the culture of what the people of Israel had done. So if you actually drop, we're, we're, we're now moving from that first layer where it's just a story about Hosea and Gomer. Let's drop together to the second layer and let's talk about God and the people of Israel. When the people of Israel moved into the land of Canaan, they were farmers, but they didn't know how to farm. So what was happening is they were starting to go to the Canaanites and the other pagan nations around them to try to get help with how to farm. And over time, as the people of Israel would watch these Canaanites farm, they would begin to observe their way of life, and they started to adopt some of the farming practices. And more than that, they started adopting some of the religious practices of these pagan nations. Now, from day one, God's intention with his people of Israel was that he wanted them to be this separate nation, set apart, totally different from pagan nations, so everybody could see, oh, these are the people of God, they live differently. But over time, the people of God, rather than standing out, the people of God started to drift and sync up with the culture around them. And what would happen is this. These Canaanites would plant a field, plant a vineyard. Uh, they would have a crop or whatever, and then they would sacrifice to Baal. Baal was their god. It was kind of a catch-all god. And Baal was kind of like their giver of life. So if you wanted rain to fall from heaven, you would pray to Baal. If you wanted your crops to succeed, you'd sacrifice to Baal. If you uh, had some cattle and you wanted them to produce more flocks, you would pray and sacrifice to Baal. And then Baal, they believed, would bring life and fertility and rain and productivity to your farm. And so what was happening over time is that the people of Israel started to adopt not just the farming practices, but the religious practices of these pagan nations. And they started worshiping not just the God of the Bible, but these other pagan gods, especially Baal as well. In fact, in, in their history at this point, they have the temple in the middle of their, their, their nation, and on the outskirts of the city, on one side they have a statue to Baal, and on the other end of the nation they have a statue to Baal. So you could travel to different parts of the nation of Israel and worship Baal, and in the middle, that's where the worship of God would occur. 
tragic stuff. So they would actually say, yeah, we believe the God of the Bible. He is God. He's our God. But when we plant vineyards and when we have crops and when we do all these things, we really want to pray and sacrifice to Baal so that those things will succeed. Here's the words of a man named Lloyd Ogilvy. Here's what he says. He says, the essence of Baal worship, now listen to this, was bartered devotion for desired provisions, whether it was productivity, fertility, or prosperity. Look at that, bartered devotion for desired provisions. Think about that. Hey, we will give you our devotion if you give us these provisions that we want. We don't care if it's God or Baal. We just want a crop that succeeds. We don't care if, it, if it's God or Baal. We just want the rains to fall. We don't care if it's God or Baal. We just need our, our cattle to, to be fertile and to continue to multiply and expand. So whether it's God or Baal, we're going to go to both, and we will give whoever, whomever God out there wants our devotion, we will give them our devotion if they will just give us the desired provisions that we have. And God won't have it. The book of Hosea is him saying, when you chase idols, when you worship other gods, you are committing spiritual adultery on me. And I'm not going to play second fiddle to anybody. So this is what God is saying. Now, here's the question. Let's just stop there for a minute. What on earth does idol worship in the 8th century have to do with you and I today in OKC in 2018? I think we struggle to see the connection between this book and our lives because when we think of idol worship, this is not often what comes to mind. What comes to mind are maybe images like this. I want to show you a couple pictures. Maybe you picture something like this. That's idol worship. This is something that people in other countries do. This is something that people uh, in the ancient world did. This is something that uh, if you are from a different religion, you might carve out an image and bow down to it. And so we think of some image like this when we think of idol worship. But what's so crazy is that when the Bible talks about idol worship, it won't let us, ha let us have the small contained vision of it. It's actually going to expand our picture and our horizons and say that idol worship is so much more broad. And by the way, it's not just something that religious people do. In fact, it really doesn't matter if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus or not. It doesn't matter if you're um, uh, religious or not. It doesn't matter if you're secular or an atheist or not. No matter who you are, chances are you have idols that you regularly sacrifice for and you regularly worship. Because idolatry is not simply carving an image and bowing down to it. Idolatry is so much more profound and it's deeper. And by the way, you can even be a Christian and also worship idols. It's true. So to help you understand what an idol is, let me, let me just read this. This was written by uh, a man named Nicholas McDonald and I found it really helpful. Here's, here's what he says. Hello, I'm an idol. Don't be afraid, it's just me. I notice that you're turned off by my name, Idol. It's okay, I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I'm your family, your bank account, your sex life, the people who accept you, your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about when you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. I'm what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. But when you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to those who have me, and you look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep you from me. And when I make a suggestion to you, you're compelled 
When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I can't see you or hear you or speak back to you, but that's what you like about me. No, I'm never quite what you think I am, but that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you, but I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. Idolatry. This isn't just something that religious people do. This isn't just something that the ancients did. Idolatry is something that we do. And by the way, there's a striking similarity between the people of Israel in the 8th century B.C., and people today in OKC, here's the, here's the similarities. They were saying, all we want is a good crop. And so Baal, God, doesn't matter. We'll give you our devotion. Just give us what we want. And what really that is, if you boil it down, is that's dead, man-centered, transactional religion. And by the way, I don't know of a better term for what we see happening all across Oklahoma than dead, man-centered, transactional religion. Yeah, I'll go to Jesus because Jesus is going to give me a better spouse. I'll go to Jesus because he's going to make my family successful. I'll go to Jesus because he's going to make me have a good life, right? I'll go to Jesus because fill in the blank, and what happens over time is that Jesus becomes a means to our end, and, and it's really insidious, but you can even be a follower of Jesus. You can even be sitting in this room. I see this in my own heart, where before long, Jesus isn't the God that you really want. He's just the guy that you use to get the God that you really want. It's really scary. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus can make your life better, in a sense, but that's not what he does, you know? Like, I think about some of our people here that are baristas that uh, work at coffee shops with really nice espresso machines, and if I went into one of those coffee shops like Slingers or uh, the Boxcar or Clarity Coffee or wherever, if I went in and I said, hey, can that espresso machine make a, a hot chocolate? They would look at me funny, and they'd be like, like, it can, but that's not really what it does. You know what I mean? Like, don't get a hot chocolate with this espresso machine. If you, like, that's, it, it can do that, but that's not really, really what it does. It does something so much more than that. Does Jesus make your life better? He can, but that's not really what he does. Like, that's not really what he's about. And before long, this insidious idolatry starts to happen where we say to God, hey, we'll give you our devotion. You just give us what we want. We'll give you our, our devotion. Just give us the, the things that we're after. And before long, Jesus isn't the end. He's a means to the end that we really want. That is the story of Hosea. And what God is saying is, when you do that to me, and when I get pushed on the back burner, and I no longer become the one that you are after, you're committing spiritual adultery. Look at what God says. Again, look at verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. That's language that is kind of a turnoff. It's kind of a, like it's harsh. In fact, some of you reading, when we were reading Hosea 2, it just, it, it was shocking to you, some of the language that God was using. Mother has played the whore. She has conceived them, has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And then go down to verse 8. Look at what God says in response. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the oil, and I was the one that lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Guys, here's the sad irony of idolatry. The sad irony of idolatry is that the very things that we want, that become our gods, are the very things that the only God is giving us to enjoy as a gift. And before long, those are the things that we use, and these great gifts 
become the things that we're after. And that's the sad irony. God is saying, you don't even realize I'm the one who gave you the stuff that you have. The house, the car, the job, the spouse, the family, the thing. I'm the one that gave you that, not so that you would worship that and terminate your affections on that. I'm the one that gave you that because I'm good. And we've turned from him. We've committed spiritual adultery on him. We've traded him for the things. Even good things, but now they become bad things because they're God things. That's the story of Hosea. Now here's the question. Does that ever work? Does it ever work to reject God and take other things that God made and turn them into your God? Does that, does that really bring you the fullness and the satisfaction and the, the, the ultimate fulfillment that your heart desires? Well, here's the second thing I want you to see. It's not just the heart of spiritual adultery, which is trading God for stuff and worshiping those things as opposed to Him, but I want you to see the heartache spiritual adultery that's the second thing the heartache of spiritual adultery listen to this in chapter 2 verse 6 therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths listen she shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them and she shall she shall seek them but shall not find them then she shall say I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. It's almost like a prodigal son story in the Old Testament where she wakes up, she comes to her senses, and she goes, it was so much better with my other husband than with all these lovers. It was so much better for me then. Look at this in verse 9. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. This is the heartache of spiritual adultery. Here's what God is saying. If you want to trade me for the stuff, and that's what you really want, then what God is doing in this moment is out of sheer love. That's, honestly, it's reckless, and it's difficult, and it's painful, but out of sheer love, what God is going to say is, fine, go chase that, go get all the things that you want, and I will block you from actually enjoying that to its full capacity. You will not be able to find what you want. You'll seek it, but you won't grab it. You will try to find it, but those things will not do what only I can do for you. This is what God says. God is basically resisting, both actively and passively, us when we pursue other idols. Some of you today, in this room, in this moment, you feel like God is against you, and maybe he is in this way, not out of anger, not out of shame, not to guilt you and push you away, but he's actually hedging you up because you're pursuing other things. And what God is trying to do is allow you to hit rock bottom so that then you see, I'm just not finding the life that I want or thought I would find by pursuing these other things. Not so that you'd feel shame and guilt, but so that you would have this wake-up moment like she's having. It was better for me then than it is now. This is the heartache of spiritual adultery. God is blocking her and saying, if you want to worship other things, it just won't work. By the way, I don't think you have to be a Christian to, to believe this. I think you can be here and not be a follower of Jesus or maybe be a doubter or a skeptic and still see that when you latch your ultimate affection and love onto something else, a person or a thing, and that becomes the thing that you consume and, and, and begins to consume you, what will happen over time is that you won't find what you're looking for and it won't bring more beauty into your life. It'll bring more chaos. Listen to the words of David Foster Wallace. Any David Foster Wallace fans out there? Uh, nobody, so that's good. He's a, he's a great guy. Um, to my knowledge, David Foster Wallace was not a, a Christian. 
He uh, was an agnostic, uh, self-proclaimed agnostic. He tragically committed suicide in 2008, but he had some profound things to say, and and this was one of them. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect and being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. That is true. It's true. If you worship something else, and that's where you tap real meaning and real significance, it doesn't bring you what you think you're going to bring you. And part of the reason is because God is actively and passively resisting you, not out of anger, out of love. Out of love. Here's the natural progression of idolatry. There's actually three steps to it. This is like the natural progression. It starts with being captivated. There's something that you and I see, something grabs our attention. We think, oh, that's cool, that's neat. That tastes good, that's pleasurable, that's fulfilling. And it captivates us, right? We're captivated. And then the second stage, the second transition on this progression of idolatry is over time we are consumed by that thing. It's the thing that we start to uh, think about on the way home from work. It drives our imaginations, our thoughts, our, our dreams. We're consumed with that thing right? This, what, this is what happened to me when I had to buy a new car. I started looking at all my options, and, and, and first I was captivated by something, and then over time I started to realize, man, I'm thinking about this all the time. It's just always in the back of my head. I'm driving home thinking about what car I'm going to buy. I'm, cons- I'm, I'm starting to be consumed with this thing. And then the third stage, the final stage of idolatry, is that eventually you and I are controlled by that thing. It starts with being captivated, then you're consumed, And it leaves you being controlled. And over time, it's not you that chooses that, but it's now like, it feels like it's choosing you. Does that make sense? And and it grabs you by the soul, and you can't say no. You've got to have it now, and you've got to keep going back, and you've got to fill in the blank. And that leads to brokenness. And that leads to chaos in your life unraveling. Years ago, before I was married, uh, I lived with my friend Aaron Addison. He's one of the pastors here. And um, we had a house, and we thought, man, you know what? Let's just invite random homeless guys to come live with us. Uh, which, by the way, I don't necessarily recommend that if you have a family. Um, but that's what we did. So we just find random guys on the, on the side of the street, and they're like, I need money. And you're like, how about a free home, you know? And come stay with us. And literally did not know these people from Adam. So just had a, a cycle of homeless guys come and stay with us and live with us. Uh, we had a Jamaican homeless man that lived with us that would wake up at like 3 a.m., talking to people in Jamaica, and by talking, I mean shouting on the phone, cooking fish that would make the whole house stink for days. You know, it's just like really wild. One of the guys that we had live with us was a, a man named David. David was um, a meth addict. He, was a, he actually used to cook meth. And 
David didn't always do that, by the way. David didn't start out, you know, really setting his sights on, what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a meth addict. That's what I want to be. No, David actually had a family. He had a wife. He had kids. He had a home. He had a good job. Things were not all well with his marriage. Things were not okay at home. And so rather than, like, getting help and reaching out for counseling or finding someone that can speak into their lives, what he would do is he would start to drink and he would go to pills just to numb out and avoid the pain. And over time, he became an addict with pills. He, he had to keep taking more pills because he needed to just not feel or feel something good. And then over time, as you can imagine, that opened up to another drug and another drug and another drug. And before long, David was cooking meth. He lost his wife. He lost his kids. He lost his job. He lost his house. When we met David, David was trying to he was walking out sobriety. He was trying to figure out what this looked like, and we had him come stay with us. And I just remember looking at that and thinking, that is a really good picture of what happens when we pursue sin. It's the thing that we want, and we get it, but then it doesn't satisfy, so we go deeper, and then we get it, and it doesn't satisfy, so we go deeper. And before long, like, we have the thing that we wanted, but it's not what we wanted. David had what he wanted, meth, but it's not what he wanted. He wanted comfort. He wanted help. He wanted to feel something. He wanted to not feel pain. And he went to this other thing. This is why the Bible describes our idolatry as adultery. It's because it almost consumes our imaginations and thoughts and we run to it and we reject God. As a pastor, this is something that I have to see and, and interact with more than I would like. People that have had affairs. And I've never, and the 10, almost 11 years of doing ministry in Oklahoma, I've never, ever, ever sat down with a couple and the, the husband or the wife say, you know, one of the things that I just, I'm, I would never take back, I'm so grateful that I was unfaithful on my spouse. I've never heard that. I've never heard someone that has been a part of an affair say that was the best decision. When I went behind my spouse's back and pursued this other relationship, that was the best thing that I ever, ever did. It, it didn't leave any brokenness, any baggage, any shame. No, it's the opposite. What I hear is, if I could take back one instance in my whole life, it would be that instance. It brought so much shame. It brought brokenness. It ruined my life. It ruined my marriage. I would never do that again in a million years. I would never do that again. That's what I hear when I sit down with couples. It doesn't leave their life with beauty. It leaves their life in shambles. And what God is saying is, when you pursue idols, it doesn't leave your life with beauty. It leaves your life in shambles. So maybe you're here today and your life's in shambles. Maybe it's not that bad. Maybe you're like, I'm not a meth addict, so I'm doing okay. I don't know if that should be your measuring stick, by the way, right? But maybe as you take an honest assessment of your heart, you would say, yeah, the culture of my heart is one of an idol factory. And it's money, or it's job, or it's stuff, or it's even good gifts. But I am consumed and controlled by them. And you feel like your life is in shambles. What do you do if that's you? Well, I've got good news and bad news for you. Which one do you want first? You can, you can say that. Which, the bad news. By the way, if you say good news, then I, I can't help you, right? You're beyond help. I'm just kidding. Don't ever ask for the, the good news first. You always want the bad. Leave on a good note. If your life is in shambles, here's the bad news. You really can't fix yourself. You can't. That's the, that's the hard news. Here's the good news. God actually wants to step in and do something beautiful. He wants to move. In fact, here's the third thing I want you to see. It's not just the heartache, 
spiritual adultery, I want you to see the hope for spiritual adulterers like us. Is there hope for people like us? Well, yeah, look at Hosea 2, verse 14. By the way, just look at Hosea 2, 14. In my Bible, there's a passage heading. I think most of you will have that in your Bible. There's a passage heading, and look at the heading of this passage. The Lord's mercy on Israel. That is profound. This is a story of unfaithfulness. This is a story of adultery, and right in the middle of it, the Lord's mercy on Israel. Listen to what God says, verse 14. Therefore, English teachers in the room, you know what this means. It means that I've just said something, and I'm about to say something else that connects to the thing that I just said, right? Here's what he's saying. You've been unfaithful. You've been an idolatrous nation. You've, you've committed spiritual adultery. You've chased after other lovers. Therefore, therefore what? Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I love that. What God is saying is you have ran away from me. You've rejected me. You've chased other idols. Therefore, I will chase after you and I will allure you, and I'll bring you to myself. And though you've been unfaithful, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna be unfaithful to you. I'm gonna pursue you with love and mercy. I won't chase you down to shame you, to bring guilt into your life. I'm not gonna point a finger and say, look at all your idols, you filthy person. What God is gonna do is, hey, I wanna speak tenderly to you. That's what God is doing for us. God chases after us when we run. Every time. And then I love that he says this, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The wilderness, the place of dryness, the place of of feeling isolated and alone, the place of hopelessness. What God is saying is, I'm gonna bring you to the place not to shame you. I'm gonna bring you to that place so that I can give you the drink, so that I can give you, so I can quench your thirst, so that I can be the one that takes care of you. If you're here, by the way, and you feel like you're at rock bottom, and you feel like your life is in shambles, and you feel like everything's falling apart around you, that is exactly where God has lovingly brought you, not to bring guilt to you, but to bring his love and his mercy to you. That is a big deal. He has actually orchestrated the events in your life to get you where you are now, not because he hates you, but quite the opposite. He's just madly in love with you. And he's not gonna let you go no matter what. Listen to these words again from Lloyd O'Gillivy. He says, here we have the first clear rendition of the central theme that will reoccur constantly throughout the symphony of unqualified grace in the book of Hosea. It is the haunting, pulsating theme of unbroken love from a broken heart. God cannot give up his bride. Regardless of what unfaithfulness she has committed, we must linger to listen to this theme and allow it to capture our minds. It must become like a familiar song that we hear and then cannot get out of our minds for days. The theme of the unqualified love of God grips our repetitive thought patterns for a lifetime, for eternity. God chooses to choose us even when we have rejected his faithfulness. There are no depths to which we can sink where he will not find us and seek to woo us back into a right relationship with himself. Some of you, the only thing you need to hear today, the only thing you need to hear today is this. There are no depths to which you can sink where he will not find you 
and seek to woo you back into a right relationship with him. You have never come to the bottom of the storehouses of his love for you. You have not. You cannot. And if you feel hopeless, if you feel like your life is in shambles, if you feel like you're prone to addiction and prone to idolatry, God is wooing you to the wilderness because he wants to love you and care for you. By the way, this is the story of the entire Bible. If you don't know anything about the Bible, this isn't a story of rules and a list of heroes that you and I should aspire to be like. This is a story of God's pursuit. It's a story of God creating us to know him and to love him, and yet we rebelled and rejected and ran. And though we rebelled, though we sinned, though we ran, it's a story of him chasing after us. And he does so in such a great, uh, dramatic way that he even leaves heaven to come to earth, lives the life that we should have lived, dies on a cross for our sin in our place, rises again from the dead. He gives us his life, he gives us his love, and there's nothing that we've done that he would not want to pursue us in. He's not looking at anyone in this room and going, yeah, he's too far, she's too far, they're too, no. He, he doesn't say that. Though he feels in his heart torn and broken by your sin, he feels even more so overwhelmed with affection and love. That's the story of the Bible. He wants you, not dead transactional religion. He wants you, you and your heart. That's what this is about. And by the way, when that sinks deep into your soul, there's this disruptive power of grace that begins to change the way that you live. And no longer does God become the thing that you pursue to get the thing that you want. Over time, what happens when the grace of God collides into your soul is he becomes the thing that you want. He becomes the thing that you're after. Listen to this, chapter two, verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my bear for I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. And look at this, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Here's what God is saying. I'm gonna love you so profoundly well that there's coming a day where I will cease to be the means to an end for you, and you will just want me not out of this religious, dutiful thing. That's not what he's after. I want your delight. I want your delight. Hey, can you just get that as Oklahoma Christians? God doesn't want you to keep the rules as much as he wants you just to delight in him. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. And if you feel a million miles away from that, he's pursuing you there. I think about the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion, and I'll close with this. The greatest one of the greatest, most beautiful things that he has written is just him talking about what God was doing when he was a million miles away from God. This C.S. Lewis, if you don't know, obviously a brilliant writer, brilliant thinker, um, taught at Oxford, incredible. He, uh, he was an atheist for a long time, and God kept pursuing him. I want you to just listen to him describing this and how it changes a person's heart. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. And then th these are the most beautiful words. I did not then see what is now the most shining, 
and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. His pursuit is where we experience freedom from the addictive tendencies of idolatry. And he's not waiting for you to turn around. He is chasing you now. That's the story of Hosea. It's a long, hard road, but it's a story of God putting his hand on you and saying, I'm not letting you go. 